Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. It is entirely possible that I just watched the best movie of 2023. Very possible, matter of fact. I could see what I just watched getting nominations for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Original Score, Best Lead Actor, Best Supporting Actor. I could see it getting stuff for a number of things. I would say Best VFX, but Christopher Nolan insists that there was no VFX used in this movie. Or I should say, he insisted that there were no VFX shots, which I think when he says that, he means that there are no shots that are entirely CGI, because obviously there had to have been CGI used to enhance certain shots in the movie. I can't really imagine a way they could have done it otherwise. Like 90% of movies you see, 99% of them, if they're an action movie, no matter how much practical work they do and how much stuff they shoot in camera, how many sets they build and all that, there's still some stuff that gets touched up in post-production or added in digitally. Not sure to what extent that took place with this one, but if there was any bit of it, then they can justify putting it up for best VFX. But otherwise, all that other stuff, yeah, I fully expect it to be considered at least for a number of those Academy Awards categories. So as you may have guessed, I saw Oppenheimer. And I saw it, to be specific, in digital IMAX last night. So I do happen to live pretty close to one of the only true IMAX theaters that actually play 70mm film. I happen to live moderately close to one of those, and I actually had a free screening to Oppenheimer earlier this week. But the thing is, I have a friend who really wants to see it with me in true IMAX format. So I said, okay, you know what? I'll just wait till he can see it with me, which will be in a couple weeks, and we'll see it together at that true IMAX theater while I see it at this digital IMAX theater because I can see it using my AMC membership and not pay a dime outside of my monthly subscription. So I said, I'll do that to watch it the first time through. Then I'll get to later experience it in the true IMAX 70 millimeters. And I'm really excited to be able to see it in that form. But For now, I saw it in probably the next best thing, and that is a digital IMAX theater. So it still captured a lot of the IMAX stuff. It just wasn't going to be as crisp as it would be on 70 millimeter film. Some people listening to this may not even know exactly what I'm talking about, but basically there are IMAX theaters and then there are LIMAX theaters. And I tend to see when I go to see IMAX movies, I see them in LIMAX because that's digital IMAX. And I don't really love the term for it. That's just what some people call it. And some people are very devout in their love of pure IMAX, where they tell everybody, don't say you saw the movie in IMAX, you saw it in LIMAX. And look, to me, if you see it in any form of IMAX, you saw it in IMAX, but it's extra special to see it in a true IMAX theater on 70 millimeter film, because the difference in picture quality, one is 4K, the other is like 18K, something like that. I think on actual film, it's something like 18K as opposed to 4K, which is the digital IMAX. So picture quality is much better on the 70 millimeter film. And on top of that, I think the screen is actually larger as well and is able to accommodate more shots because for Oppenheimer specifically, 
to my understanding, there were shots that I saw in the IMAX format and some that were not in the IMAX format. And the reason they weren't in the format is because they were too large to fit onto that screen. So I got some cropped version of it. But when I see it in the other theater, I'll be able to get the full picture and the full experience. So I am looking forward to that. But I just had to make a distinction that there are two different types of IMAXs. And when it comes to the pure IMAX theater, there are only about 18 of those in the entire country, if I remember correctly. There are kind of more than that. I think there are maybe like 40 or something, but a majority of them are at like science centers and places like the Grand Canyon, for example, where they show some Grand Canyon movie. I don't know. Some kids at my elementary school got to go on a field trip there and watched a movie in their IMAX theater, but I was not one of those kids that got to do that. Nevertheless, I did see the movie, and I saw it in the best format I possibly could last night, and I'm just stunned. I really didn't know what I was going to say when I started recording here, or even beforehand. Usually, I think about stuff, and I'll make some notes, and I'll say, okay, I'll talk about this, then I'll talk about this. Then sometimes I have so many thoughts that I'll say, I'm just going to wing it because I know I can talk about this for forever, because if I really love a movie or if I really dislike a movie, I can talk about it for a long time without notes or anything like that, which was the case for Black Adam, The Flash, Halloween Ends. Those are movies I wasn't crazy over, and I could talk about them with no notes for a very long time. And then on the flip side, I think Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, I didn't make a ton of notes for that one, and I was able to talk about that for a long time. And in this case, I just could not put my thoughts together. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to hop on the mic, start recording, and just see where the wind blows. So first off, let it be known where I stand on the Barbie versus Oppenheimer gladiator match. So most people were planning on seeing both Barbie and Oppenheimer Barbie because it is starring some very talented actors and actresses, and it's being directed by Greta Gerwig, and I believe Noah Baumbach wrote it, who is a fantastic writer. And the thing about Greta Gerwig is she has mostly done smaller, more art house style movies before Barbie. So this is kind of a big movie for her. So a lot of film nerds want to see that, obviously, to see her first semi-blockbuster. I don't really know what the budget is, so I don't know how big it is, but it's a big summer movie for sure. But then on the flip side, you have Christopher Nolan, who is truly one of the most impactful directors of our time. I have come across a lot of people in recent years that have either soured on him or were like, oh, I was never that big of a fan of his because it's become a little bit popular to say he's overrated or that, oh, he thinks he's way more clever than he is and to say his movies are pretentious and convoluted and a number of other things. And I honestly think the only reason people are saying that is because his only movie in the last so many years was Tenet, which a lot of people had high expectations for and people were very mixed on that one. I think more people liked it than disliked it but it wasn't universally loved like a majority of his films. Then before that, there was Dunkirk, which was well-received, but I don't know if it had the same impact as some of his other films, like the Dark Knight trilogy or Inception, where people still talk about some of those movies. And before that, there was Interstellar, which is my personal favorite movie of his, 
but it also might be one of his least accessible because it's what, two hours and 50 minutes? And it's a big space drama almost. I mean, there's a lot of suspense and there's a decent amount of levity and heart and all of that in the movie. But at the end of the day, it is a character movie in the middle of this big space odyssey. And for me, it's his most beautiful and human movie that he's made. And I think it's still my favorite movie of his. And that's not a knock on any of his other movies because Interstellar on most days I would have in my top five favorite movies. But I think that's the reason for some of the Nolan hate as of late is that of his last few movies, they're all very different from each other and some are not as accessible. Tenet, you could argue, is a little bit convoluted or hard to follow. Interstellar, if someone were to say it was boring, I would understand it. I wouldn't agree with it, but I would understand it. And then Dunkirk is a solid movie that I just don't hear a ton of people talk about. So I think it's just the trendy thing where when a big director starts to fade ever so slightly, people make a point to say, oh, I never liked him or I always thought he was overrated. They jump on this hate train for no reason. There doesn't need to be a hate train. But that's why I'm so glad that Christopher Nolan made this movie Oppenheimer because when it was first announced, I said, oh, okay, that's probably going to be good. But I wasn't too interested because I didn't care to watch a biopic about J. Robert Oppenheimer because I thought, yeah, Nolan's going to direct the movie and it's going to be really good because he's a good director and I know the cast will be great. It's going to look good. The score is going to be good. But I really like his original stuff. I actually remember talking to somebody as of late, it was maybe a year ago, that they were talking about how they preferred Denny Villeneuve to Christopher Nolan. And I really like Denny Villeneuve as well. And I had said, you know, I don't know if any director has had a three movie run as solid as Denny Villeneuve's Prisoners, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. Those three movies in a row, I said, I don't know if any director has three consecutive movies that are that friggin' good back to back to back. And the guy had said, yeah, that's true. But for me, it's just that I think Nolan is good with adaptations. I think his original stuff is just overly convoluted and thinks it's smarter than it is and it's kind of dull. I went, huh. I thought it was so weird because my favorite stuff of his has been his original stuff. Because for me, I like his Dark Knight trilogy a lot. I actually love the Dark Knight trilogy, but I like his original movies better. I like Inception more. I like Interstellar more. I even like Tenet more. And then his movie Dunkirk is probably one of my least favorite movies of his. And it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a good movie. But I just didn't love it like I love his other movies, which is funny because I have a few friends where that is their favorite Nolan movie. But I just like his original stuff better. And so that's why with Oppenheimer, I said, this is probably going to be good, but I really like when he tells original stories. And then the first trailer dropped and I thought, wow, that looks really cool. And then the next trailer dropped and I thought, this looks like the greatest movie of all time. And I love the behind the scenes quotes and interviews from this movie because every single time they talked to, whether it was Robert Downey Jr. or Killian Murphy or Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Every single person was just like, yeah, this is the greatest shit I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, There was nobody that was saying, oh, I think people are going to like it. Oh, it's a movie about this and this. Every single quote was just, 
yeah, this is the best movie I've worked on in my entire life. Like Robert Downey Jr. had said that, where he said, this is the best movie I've ever been a part of. And Killian Murphy had said it was the best script he had ever read, the one for Oppenheimer. And a bunch of other people like Emily Blunt and Matt Damon and some other cast members. I'm not going to go and look through all the quotes right now, but a bunch of them were just saying, yeah, this is the greatest thing I've ever worked on. And I remember somebody pointing out that that is the coolest way to market the movie instead of just trying to sell to a specific audience or say, oh, you're going to love seeing this or this. They weren't even selling portions of the movie. They weren't trying to sell anybody on it. They're just like, this is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And it felt kind of real for that reason, because it didn't feel like they were selling. It just felt like they were reacting to a movie that they just worked on and maybe saw a screening of and were like, yeah, this is incredible. But yeah, the thing about this movie is that kind of like Dune, every time they announced a new actor in the cast, everyone was saying, oh my gosh, who isn't in this movie? And there were jokes being made about everyone being cast in the movie. People are joking that their grandma was cast in the movie and stuff like that, just because every day there was a new casting announcement for Dune and Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer, I think, absolutely takes the cake when it comes to the cast, because Dune had a bunch of heavy hitters and there were probably like 15 to 20 people that were notable actors in Dune. This movie, I'm telling you, dude, every single scene when a new character was introduced, the second I would see them, I'd think, what else have I seen them in? Oh, this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. Like I'm seeing some A-list actors And some fantastic actors like Casey Affleck is an Academy Award winning actor, okay? He's in the movie for like three minutes. Remy Malek, another Academy Award winning actor somehow, but he's in the movie for like five minutes. And so they're just all these actors that I thought, oh, hey, he's a really good actor. And they're in the movie for like 10 seconds. I was blown away. I'm telling you. Every single time you're meeting a new person, I'd say, hey, it's this guy. And I'd be really pumped because I'm about to see this guy on screen for possibly the remainder of the film. And then you never see him again. And you're like, holy crap, they got this guy just for, what, 90 seconds? But I'll just go through some of the cast right now. I'm going to read through them. I'm not going to talk about their individual performances, but I'll just read through some of the guys. I seriously on IMDb had to scroll like three times before I got to Matt Damon's name. That's crazy, right, guys? But we got Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Alden Ehrenreich, Robert Downey Jr., Jason Clark, Tony Goldwyn, Megan Blair, Kenneth Branagh, Matthias Schweigofer, Josh Hartnett, Alex Wolfe, Dylan Arnold, Florence Pugh, Jefferson Hall, Matthew Modine, David Desmalchin, and then Matt Damon, Dane DeHaan, Josh Peck, Jack Quaid, Benny Safdie, Gustav Skarsgård, Devin Bostick, aka Roderick Rules, Remy Malik, Casey Affleck, Gary Oldman. And that's all I'm going to read off right now. There are like 20 more names that I scrolled past. I was just trying to read the ones that I actually knew from different projects. But yeah, every single time I saw a new one, I went, oh yeah, I remember their name popping up in casting news. And it was for Oppenheimer, wasn't it? So this is the most stacked cast I've ever seen. But let's talk about the actual movie because the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer is fascinating, I suppose, but I think that very few directors could have pulled this movie off. 
And matter of fact, I don't think a single director could have pulled it off in the manner that Christopher Nolan did. Because there's some very sensitive subject matter here. You have your guy at the center of the film that I suppose is a protagonist, and that would be Oppenheimer. He's a brilliant man. He's very arrogant. He is a womanizer. He is a little bit unpredictable as well, which makes him to the U.S. government, the U.S. military, and even to some of his peers, it makes him untrustworthy because they can't quite figure him out. He has such an interesting personality, an interesting life, an interesting approach to his work. But he is front and center of this film, and he is one of the most controversial men in history because he is regarded as a brilliant, brilliant man, but he also was the father of one of the most destructive creations in all of human history, which has led to countless deaths and atrocities throughout history since then. And the movie tells itself in a very interesting way because it jumps from like three different timelines at a time and you see things from a few different points of view. Everything in color in this movie is told from Oppenheimer's point of view And then everything in black and white is told from third-person point of view. So all the Oppenheimer stuff is in color and it's in camera and you're seeing it all from his point of view, more or less, how he saw things. And then the black and white stuff is how other people saw things and things that went on where he was not around. And there are even scenes in black and white that he's in, but it's not necessarily from his point of view. He is not the primary storyteller or primary source in this story when it's in black and white. And I'm glad I knew that going in because I could see at first possibly thinking, oh, the stuff in color is Oppenheimer's past, him growing up and building the bomb, and then the black and white stuff is stuff in the future. And in some ways, that is how some of it is broken up, but the important distinction is actually just that the stuff in color is Oppenheimer's point of view, Black and white is other people's points of view. One of the primary guys would be Louis Strauss, who is Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is a very big player in this story and in this film. But yeah, you see as Oppenheimer grows up, he's a brilliant man. You see him study abroad and meet plenty of brilliant people throughout the years. They dropped the name Heisenberg, and I was expecting the Breaking Bad theme to play, but it did not. And you meet Heisenberg, and it's Matthias Schweighofer, who is a German actor that I've become a very big fan of in recent years. And I thought it was really cool to see him in a movie like this, even if it was for, again, a very brief role, as many people seem to have signed on for in this film. But I think a lot of people in this movie were just glad they got to be part of it. But you see as Oppenheimer eventually grows to be a very strong voice in the scientific community. And he has almost this cultish following of people that borderline worship him over the years. And yes, he ends up taking on the Manhattan Project. And so a big part of this movie is you watching him assemble his scientists, assemble all the most brilliant minds in the world. I actually love the scene where they're kind of gathering the team because you've seen that in a lot of action movies or superhero movies where they are assembling the team and it's really cool. But in this case, it's for a movie where they're just building a bomb and it's a historical movie. 
but watching them go and recruit members of the team with the vintage Christopher Nolan style where you got the score going really heavy and it's cross-cutting like crazy. And one of my favorite things that he does where it's like, yeah, if you stop and think about it, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but he'll have characters talking and then it'll cut to them in a different location, continuing the conversation. And he does that to add some variety to the shots. So it's not just a stale shot of them walking and talking or sitting and talking. But, you know, it'll be like them sitting on a train talking to each other. And then it's going to cut to them walking down a street together, continuing that conversation, like literally right where the last sentence left off. They're picking up the next sentence in a completely different location. It's like, if you ever stop to think about that, you say, did they just put the conversation on pause until they got onto this street and then picked up that conversation exactly right there? But you can also imagine sometimes that maybe there's a lot of dialogue in between and that it's just cutting up so you can hear the most important stuff and it's just edited really well where it flows really well, where they've been talking for maybe a couple hours. They were on this train ride and then they were taking this walk afterwards and you're just getting all the necessary information as the viewer. That's how I like to imagine it. But it is one of my favorite things because it flows so well and you're jumping from location to location in the same conversation seemingly. But I love that scene where they're assembling the team of scientists. And I got to say, the entire process of them talking all of their nerd stuff, it went way over my head because it's a lot of physics and other stuff that I just don't understand. But, you know, it sounds cool. And there's nobody better at writing dialogue that is too smart for me, but it sounds cool enough than Christopher Nolan. Because he had that all the time in Interstellar where they're talking about a bunch of nerd stuff that I don't care to know about. But I'd be sitting there like, yeah, I'm with you. Keep going. But while you're seeing this, watching Oppenheimer assemble his team and figure out ways to build this great weapon... It is cross-cutting to a couple different things. You are seeing Levi Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is not necessarily on trial, but it's some type of congressional hearing so that he can be approved for the cabinet, if I'm not mistaken. I saw this movie. I got out of it at like two in the morning and I slept for like four hours because I had a Zoom call that I had to be on this morning. So if I miss any details, that's why. But Levi Strauss has somewhat of a congressional hearing, and he is answering questions about Oppenheimer and about some of the stuff that he might have known and some stuff he might have gone along with or been opposed to. And so you don't really know exactly what is going on in each of these scenes. You're kind of just following it and you're interested enough, and it eventually will come together in the third act where you're like, oh my gosh, that's what this all was. And that's why for me, I loved the third act of this movie, not to jump ahead necessarily, but I saw reviews saying that the first two acts were some of the greatest of Christopher Nolan's career. And then they said the third act, it drags. But all in all, most people still gave the movie a pass. There were just a couple that said, oh, the third act was so dull that it weighed the entire movie down. And so I knew the second it got to that last hour that it was the last hour of the movie. It was very obvious what the turning point was that people were referring to. But I thought the last hour was the most interesting, the most compelling, and the best directed hour of the entire movie. Truly, I believe that. There are like three scenes in this movie that are some all-timers for Christopher Nolan. 
And one is the actual bomb test that they do. And you see it a bunch in the trailers. But there are two scenes after that in the final hour of the movie. And they're spaced out pretty well. But those two scenes are so incredible, so good, that I thought, man, how were people not invested in this third act? Because this is just incredible filmmaking. And so without giving up too much in terms of detail, yes, you are seeing the construction of the bomb, but you're also seeing Oppenheimer so many years later sitting before a committee of people that are asking him a lot of questions about the creation of the bomb, about things that went on beforehand, about things that they think he may have lied about or at least omitted. And so he's being asked some very tough questions and you don't exactly know why, but you kind of figure, okay, I'm going to see why eventually in this movie, why they're asking questions about these things. And oftentimes you are seeing a scene play out and it's cross-cutting to them asking him questions about that scene many years later. So again, I think it's edited in a very clever way where this could have been really, really boring and it's not. Now, to be clear, I still think there are going to be plenty of people that will be bored with this movie because it is three hours long and it is 90 plus percent dialogue. But for sickos like me who, one, love Christopher Nolan's movies and two, have just a deep admiration for the craft, I think that you won't be bored. You might be a bit anxious at times waiting for a certain scene or waiting for a certain reveal or something like that, but I don't think you'll be bored if you're a sicko like me. But I do think the way they told the story was really, really clever. And this is based off of a book, a book which I have not read because I don't read, but um, I've read it as a great book. I mean, I just don't really read a ton of books. And funny enough, this is a book that Robert Pattinson gave to Christopher Nolan, I think after they wrapped filming for Tenet, that he passed it off to Christopher Nolan, and Nolan read through it and was like, yeah, I'm going to make this into a movie. And so he wrote a screenplay based off of what he had read from this book, and then he assembled his team and then directed this movie. So this movie is partially possible because of Robert Pattinson, so thank you to Rob And I think Christopher Nolan had even mentioned that he kind of wanted Rob to have a role in the movie, but Rob is pretty tied up with projects because he's got his Batman stuff going on and he has a number of other projects that he is already attached to. So it just wouldn't have been feasible for him. But I'll tell you what, as somebody who, when this movie was announced, I was thinking, yeah, I just don't know how this is going to be. I don't know how interesting this movie is going to be. I don't know how good it can possibly be. Like I thought it would be good, but maybe not enjoyable. Like, for example, David Fincher's movie Mank. Is that a good movie? Yeah. Is that an enjoyable movie? No. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not an enjoyable movie uh, in the slightest bit. It's a well-directed movie. It's a well-made movie. But yeah, it's not one that you're sitting down with friends and you say, oh, have you guys seen Mank? Let's sit down and watch Mank. Yeah, no. But I'm happy to report that this movie was not that. I was a doubter, and then I was won over by the trailers, and then I watched the movie and I thought, wow, that is phenomenal. And the third act is really what makes it stick, because there are, I don't want to say plot twists in the third act, but yeah, there were some things that I was not expecting, and a lot of stuff that I went, wow, I had no idea about all this. 
And it doesn't make Oppenheimer out to be some glorious hero necessarily. It makes him a conflicted man where you can see his strengths as a human being, but you can see at the end of the day that he was just a very confusing guy who definitely made some mistakes and had some miscalculations. I think it's apparent he put faith in some of the wrong people and was a bit naive. And that doesn't excuse him from any crimes against humanity that were committed because of what he helped create necessarily, but I think it does paint a full picture of who the man was. Now, I'm going to run through and talk about the cast as quickly as possible, because if I talk about everyone in great detail, we are going to be here all day. First off, Killian Murphy plays J. Robert Oppenheimer. And boy, I've always thought Killian Murphy was a great actor and... Absolutely, this is his best performance. And the reason it's his best performance is, yes, partially because it's a three-hour movie where he is at the center. It requires more out of him, and he is able to give more as a result of that. But he is excellent in this movie. Truly, he carries the personality of this arrogant man who later becomes this haunted man who you can tell will never have peace for the remainder of his life. At a certain point in this movie, you say, wow, this guy is completely scarred by the events that have taken place, partially or largely because of his mind and because of his efforts. Then you have Emily Blunt, who plays Kitty Oppenheimer, who is a woman that when Oppenheimer meets her. She is married to another man, and he at that time is married to another woman. But she leaves her husband, he leaves his wife, and they have a kid together. And yeah, it's kind of messy, but Oppenheimer got plenty of women. I gotta say, he had game. I was impressed with his abilities to go from Florence Pugh to Emily Blunt, is no small feat. Even if you went from Emily Blunt to Florence Pugh, again, I'm just saying, like, Dude, that's insane. That's a crazy bounce back. But Emily Blunt is really good in this movie. I feel she's not required to do as much in the first couple acts of the movie. She has a few scenes that are notable and that are very solid. But there is one specific scene in the third act of the movie that she just crushes it, man. She is awesome. Just incredible. Because for a lot of the movie, I thought... Yeah, you know, you could have cast a lot of people in this role. But then this one scene in the third act, I said, yeah, you needed Emily Blunt for this one. That's for sure. Then Alden Ehrenreich is in this movie. Alden Ehrenreich, it just has him in the cast as Senate aide. I don't remember if they have an actual name for him in the movie. And he's one of those guys that I mentioned who's only in the movie for a few minutes, Alden Ehrenreich, who, for those who don't remember, he played Han Solo in the movie Solo. But I'm a huge fan of him as an actor. I think he's a very good actor, and it kind of pains me that Solo turned out the way it did, where it had such lukewarm reception from critics and from the audience, and that it didn't do well at the box office, thus discontinuing any chances at sequels because I happen to like that movie and a big reason for it is because I really liked him as Han Solo. But I think he's a great actor and he is really good in this movie in the few minutes that he is in it. He is a very important character, I believe. And I think in his short time, he's able to provide a good amount of levity and humanity to this movie. But again, I was glad to see him in a movie like this. Then you have Jason Clark, who plays Roger Robb. 
And I'm not going to spoil his role in the movie, but again, he's a very important player in this film and he does a really good job. Jason Clark is a great actor. Tony Goldwyn plays Gordon Gray. Similar to Jason Clark's character, I don't want to say too much about him, but Tony Goldwyn is solid in this film as well. Macon Blair plays Lloyd Garrison. Well done to him. Then Kenneth Branagh plays Niels Bohr who has, I think, a very important role in the movie. Although, again, he's a guy who was in the movie for like three to five minutes. But he has a very important conversation with Oppenheimer. You see some of it in the trailer to the movie. But it's a character that I can't imagine anyone other than Kenneth Branagh playing. And you know what? He delivered in a very important moment in the movie. It's kind of incredible, you know, to see a cast this large and... Every time in the movie, I thought, wow, this guy's only in for a few minutes, but he was so good. There would then be another actor that would come in for a few minutes and I'd say, wow, they're in it for just a few minutes, but that was so good. Like all around, this may be the greatest cast I've ever seen assembled in a movie. The greatest cast with the best all around performances. Matthias Schweighofer mentioned he was Heisenberg. He's great. I love him, but he's only in the movie for a few minutes. Josh Hartnett plays Ernest Lawrence, who is a very important character in this movie, and I gotta say, I am a huge Josh Hartnett fan, and it was kind of cool to see him in a Christopher Nolan movie after all of these years, because for those who don't know, he was on the shortlist to play Batman in Batman Begins, but one of the hangups was that Christopher Nolan wanted him for both Batman and for The Prestige, and he was not going to commit to both movies. He really just wanted to do The Prestige. He did not want to do Batman, but it was either one or the other. And Nolan wanted someone who was going to do both because he was shooting Batman Begins and the Prestige back to back. And so Christian Bale got the role instead. And a big reason for it was that Josh Hartnett just did not want to be in the spotlight anymore. I think he had just had a couple kids and they were about to go through school. And so he just did not want to be this huge name. He wanted his kids to have a somewhat normal life, but now he's kind of back into acting because it's like 15 years later. So I think they're mostly grown at this point, but it was cool to finally see him in a Christopher Nolan movie. And it was a good role for him. I really enjoyed him in this movie. Alex Wolf. He's in the movie. He's solid. Dylan Arnold. He plays Oppenheimer's brother, Frank. And Dylan Arnold does a solid job as well. I keep saying the word solid, good, great, because look, I'm going to run out of ways to praise these guys after a while. I'm going to run out of words to use. So let me quickly breeze through the rest of these, and I'll stop if there's someone really, really important that I need to talk about. Florence Pugh, small role in the movie, but very critical role as well. She does a really good job. I saw people complaining that her role was too small, and it's like, well, it's based on a true story, and she was playing the character in that story, so what did you want Nolan to do? Write her to be someone she wasn't? Jefferson Hall plays a friend of Oppenheimer's named Chevalier, and he was another guy where I went, man, I don't really know him too well. I knew his face, but I didn't really know him until afterwards where I looked it up and said, oh yeah, I know him. And yeah, he's excellent in the movie. Matthew Modine gives a solid performance. David Desmalchin, I enjoy him in everything I have seen him in. Matt Damon is really, really good. Really, really good. I mean, I expect the Best Supporting Actor nomination in this movie to go to Robert Downey Jr., but Matt Damon is almost equally deserving because, again, he is just on fire. 
Every line of dialogue he delivers is just electric, man. He puts so much energy into the role. Then you got Dane DeHaan, Josh Peck, Jack Quaid. Dane DeHaan probably is the most noteworthy of those three in this movie. I think he's required to do more than the other two guys. And again, I love Dane DeHaan. I'm a fan of him as an actor. I haven't seen him in a ton of stuff as of late. The last thing I saw him in was a Queeby original show, which Queeby kind of came and went, but he was good in that show, just to be clear. And he's really, really good in this movie for his brief role. Benny Safdie plays Edward Teller, a very critical person in this actual story, and his performance was also very important. Benny Safdie is just a great character actor at this point in time. Gotta say, it's really impressive. Okay, then we got Remy Malik. Remy Malik is very important in this film as well. Gosh, man, it's just crazy going through this cast. But yeah, he is really, really good. Nothing more I need to say. Olivia Thirlby, I'm making note of her because I recognized her face from Dread and Juno. And I'll just say it was nice to see her in this. Then we got Casey Affleck, who again stellar performance in his brief minutes. And then Gary Oldman is Gary Oldman. He can just disappear into a scene as whatever character he needs to play. He's an excellent character actor and he is very, very good in his brief scene. I actually didn't know it was him because he's in heavy makeup and all that. And I thought, man, this voice is kind of familiar. And then I was looking through the cast and I see Gary Oldman was Harry Truman. I went, oh, okay. Yep. That's it. That's who it was. So this is an incredible cast. As I said, one of the best I've ever seen, if not the very best. Then I'll talk about the cinematography. So yes, visually, this movie is beautiful. The cinematographer is Hoyt Van Hoytema, who some may know is my favorite cinematographer. He's, if not my favorite, he's in my top three. There are a couple other guys I really like, but he is absolutely at the very top of my list for favorite cinematographers. And his work in this movie is breathtaking. Quite honestly, if this movie was not visually captivating, it would just be pretty good. Because you'd have the great performances, you'd have the screenplay that's really good, you'd have already an interesting story, and the sound design and the score, which I'll talk about. But the visuals really take this movie home. You could not have done this without the color palette and the framing and everything that comes with the cinematography in this film. So shout out to Hoyt Van Hoytema. He is just an incredible cinematographer that I hope starts to get more recognition from the Academy as he was completely snubbed a handful of times at the Academy Awards. I hope he is not overlooked next time. I mentioned the sound design in this movie. It is so good. Look, there's the classic Nolan problem of the music getting too loud and the sound getting too loud and the dialogue not being loud enough. Yeah, that's not entirely Christopher Nolan's fault. He mixes these movies properly for the studios that he plays them in, for the theaters that he is playing them in, which they have the ideal audio mixing for his movies when he sets them up and plays them for himself. So I guarantee if it's properly mixed at your theater, it'll sound good. But the problem is, They don't hire actual projectionists at theaters anymore. They just get a file of a movie and they press play. Where back in the day, there were actual projectionists that would handle the film and they would adjust the color and the framing and the sound and all that to make sure that everything matched up, that the projector was in sync with the movie before pressing play. 
And that way, everyone got the best visual experience as well as auditory experience. But sadly, that's not the case anymore. They just get a file and they press play. And so, yeah, there might be times where the music or the sound is a little bit louder than the dialogue, but I think I was able to hear about 98% of the spoken dialogue. And in my opinion, only about 98% needed to be heard anyway. But the use of sound in this movie is very incredible. I'm not just talking the original score. I mean, sound in general. There are times where it would be so quiet and it would build this sense of terror and dread and suspense in a scene. And I'd be sitting there thinking, man, I know what happens here because I know enough about history where I know what happens here, but the way they would build tension or they would cut sound in a scene, you'd hear maybe a ringing or just a stomping noise or whatever other sound that they put in, but a lot of times it would just go so quiet and then it would go from so quiet to so loud and overwhelming and thunderous. It was incredible, really incredible. And then lastly, the score by Ludwig Gornson. So I think for the first two acts of the movie, the score acts as a way to help the movie flow. It creates a good flow and also it will help build tension in some scenes and provide some intrigue or mystery in other scenes. But the third act is really where it landed for me because the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, this is a solid score for sure. It's like any other Ludwig score, but I'm waiting for the moment. And in the third act, there are several scenes that, yes, the sound design's good. Yes, the acting is good and the cinematography's good. But the original score, actually, I would say that in the last hour of the movie, that's where the visuals are, not to say less important, but maybe not as impactful. And that's where the sound and the score and the acting and the writing play the biggest role in the movie, especially the original score. And that's where, once again, I said, man, Ludwig Gornson is an incredible composer. He was able to capture all these emotions throughout the movie with his score and also provide sounds that are just so new where it feels like something from him, but it doesn't feel like something you've heard before from him. And it definitely doesn't sound like anything you've heard before from anyone else. And it's kind of funny because it has this newer vibe to it. His sound sounds newer which you would think would clash with the day and age of Oppenheimer, but instead it just works really, really well. So once again, a fantastic original score by Ludwig Gornson, and I hope he gets props for it at the Academy Awards. Not that this is all about this movie getting accolades, but I'd like to see it, certainly. Sometimes I enjoy a movie so much where I say, I hope this gets the credit it deserves because it'll be remembered that way. It'll be remembered as being a great, impactful movie if it does well at the box office and if a bunch of people love it. But I think when it gets those accolades, it really makes a point to say, yeah, this movie did have the best performance of the year, or at least one of them. This movie did have one of the best original scores. This movie's cinematography was off the charts. And so truly, this movie through and through was a masterpiece to me. Is it my favorite Christopher Nolan movie? I don't think it was necessarily, but I think it is his best movie. And mind you, when I talk about favorite movies, I mention Interstellar. It's in my top five favorite movies. So for Oppenheimer to be above that, it would require me to say Oppenheimer is in my top five favorite movies. And yeah, I'm not prepared to say that. I'll just say it is for sure the best movie I've seen this year on a technical level. And all the other stuff, the style, and the performances, all that, I've enjoyed it so much. 
I was blown away. I was honestly speechless. All I could spit out after I walked out of the movie were a bunch of dumb jokes on Twitter, which happened to play out very well, if I do say so myself. (laughs) But that was all I could muster were some dumb jokes on Twitter afterwards because I couldn't really put into words how I felt about this movie. And I still feel I wasn't quite able to do that for as much as I loved it. It was hard for me to put it into words, but that's what I'll say. I think it's fantastic, incredible. I don't know if it'll be for everyone. I will put a warning out there. Yes, it's rated R. A large part of that is the suspense and there is some language, but really not a ton of language. And there is some sex and nudity, a large enough chunk of nudity to make you uncomfortable if you are there with, I don't know, your parents or something. So just keep that in mind. There are at least a couple scenes that you would probably be a little uncomfortable watching with maybe your parents. But outside of that, I think it is fantastic and definitely worth checking out, especially if you are a fan of Christopher Nolan or a fan of history, because I felt very enlightened walking out of this movie. I walked out thinking, wow, I had no idea about all of this stuff. So yeah, it's a cinematic masterclass. I don't know what more to say, but that's all I'm going to have for today for you guys. The next time you hear from me, I will be talking about Barbie which I am actually set to see tonight that I am recording this. And so I'm excited to talk to you guys about that one. In the meantime, make sure you are following me both on here and on Instagram. You can find me under the username at vitamin C pod. You will find updates both on our podcast and on the movie business day to day. So again, be sure to follow me there and you will hear from me later this week.